Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. We're in week three of Deep Clean, a series where we talk about taking care of our souls. Have you ever felt like life lacked meaning or purpose? We all have. It is important that we avoid filling our heart with the things of this world. Instead, we must go after God when we feel empty. Enjoy the message. All right, we are in our third week of Deep Clean, and we're going to talk about what happens when you feel empty. What happens uh, when, when the condition of your heart feels uh, just a bit blah? Our soul. This, our soul is the inner person, the seat of our feelings, the thoughts and affections that we have. John Piper, again, uh, defined it this way. You are a soul and you have a body. What happens when our hearts, when our souls, those words are used often synonymously in Scripture, what happens when they get weary, when they feel empty, when you just feel, when you wake up in the morning, you feel blah. Well, uh, Alice and I, we've been married for 15 years, and it hasn't been blah. It's been an adventure every single day. It's been awesome. It's been amazing. And not 15 years is June. Uh, but anyway, she's like, oh, you know, yeah, all right, fine. I'm, I'm optimistic here, right? And so anyway, uh, 15 years this June, and it's been amazing, amazing, uh, just 15 years and when we started off marriage, we decided to go big on our honeymoon. We said, we're going to go on a Hawaiian cruise. Oh, yeah, we were broke, right? And so, but we, we saved up for it. Now looking back, it's like, okay, you know, if I like Dave Ramsey, that thing, I could have, we could have had a car. You know, we could have had a number of things. But no, you can't tell a newlywed that's in love what to do, all right? So we went to Hawaii on a cruise. We have the pictures to prove that we had a great time. And you know what I love about cruises? You, and if you've ever been on a cruise, you know what I'm going to say, it's the food. Oh, yes. You could just take the cruise to anywhere around the world, but as long as you have the buffets three times a day. It's not even three times a day. You can go as, as many times as you want all throughout the day. All right? You can go to all these different restaurants, specialty restaurants, and it's free with your admission to the cruise. All right? So it's absolutely amazing. In fact, one part, they wake you up at midnight to go to what's called like the chocolate buffet. It's everything made of chocolate. Like this is indulgence. It's awesome. And as I'm telling you, it may have been sin, okay? But what's amazing with this, it's all-inclusive, which means when the boat would dock on the land, we had this plan. We'll eat as much food as we want on the boat, you know, have as much water, soda, whatever we want on the boat. But when we get on that, when we get our rental car, we drive around the islands, we're not going to get nothing, right? This is how we're going to budget it. And Allison, actually, you had to remind me, this was not our idea. This was my idea, okay? And you're going to see why she doesn't want to own it, all right? So uh, we, we, when we docked in Maui, we got, a, we got a, a car rental, and we went all over the island. We were just finding everything we can in that island for that one day. And as we got onto the 2 o'clock hour, um, something happened in our relationship. We were hungry. We were thirsty. And we had, what I didn't know at the time what this was, but we had, looking back, our first fight, all right? Our first fight. We were, and why? Because we were hangry. Why? Because everything annoyed each other of, of each other, right? But when you are hangry, what you feel at other times, like, oh, that's so cute, right? You're like, that's so annoying. And so as we're going down the road, Allison's like, I'm hungry. I'm like, yes, but we're saving money. We're saving like 20 bucks. Looking back, this is terrible. But anyway, we're, we're, we're going down the road. We're in the most beautiful island on the planet, perhaps, and everything is bugging us about everything because we're hungry. In fact, when you are hungry, when you're hangry, when you're tired, when you're thirsty, when you need food, you begin to think a little less clearly, right? 
And so as we're going down this road, and there's just really a rim road, uh, as we're going down this road, there was a sign saying, please do not enter fire ahead. And I'm like, I'm on an island. I don't know when the next time I'm gonna be in Maui. I don't care what that sign says. I'm hungry, I'm hangry, and we just kept on going. It doesn't matter uh, what the sign says. We're gonna keep on going. And this is what we end up seeing. In fact, I'll show you the pictures here. So there, there it is. You can see the little plume of smoke, like whatever. And then as we kept on driving further and further, uh, we realized, okay, this thing's starting to take over the road. As we drove further, it was like right on the, the side of the road. I think there might be another picture there. And, and as, as we drove by the road, this fire was literally surrounding the road. But I'm like, you know what? Hungry, hangry. We're going to see this island. Not thinking straight. We kept on going. Well, finally, we got to the other side of the fire. You know, we, finally, we got to the breaking point. Like, let's just eat. I know we had this. This was a great uh, plan. Actually, Allison convinced me. She's like, why can't we have food? Okay, fine. We'll go get Subway or something. And so we, we pulled over. We broke, I broke my own rule, and it, it was a dumb rule, okay? And we ate. And when you eat, when you replenish, your eyes open up, and you begin to see the world for what it really is, and you realize, oh, this feels pretty good. Why did we do this, okay? And as we left the subway, we got to the parking lot, the plume of smoke was gigantic. The fire had grown so big that the sign on the other side of the fire now said, road closed. Now, there's a problem. If it says road closed, this road is the only road back to our cruise ship. If we can't get back to our cruise ship, the cruise was going to leave, and if they left, we're just going to have to make Maui our home. Not a bad idea, but I didn't want to be Maui homeless. There was one road, though. There was one road, and it was a road that hugged the mountains, and it went up through the mountains that hugged the coastline. It was one lane, but cars can go both directions, and I realized we got to go for it, or else we're going to miss our cruise, and so we went for it. It was a road that uh, we weren't supposed to take our rental car down, but it's like, we got to go for this, and I'm going to tell you, for the next couple hours, I was white-knuckling that thing. We, literally, there was no guardrail. There was a couple times we felt like we were going to fall into the ocean. There was one particular time that a big old truck was coming our way. We literally had to move two of our tires on the side of the mountain so that we both wouldn't fall off and we could squeeze through. Like, this was a really bad idea, and Allison constantly reminded me, and it's all because you wanted to save $20. Well, we made it back to the cruise ship with 15 minutes to spare. And I want to tell you, why am I telling you this story today? Because we got to a point where we were hungry, where we were thirsty, and we didn't think clearly any longer. You see, an empty stomach is an inconvenience in a moment. An empty stomach, if you let it go on, will make you sick. And in fact, an empty stomach and being thirsty and not getting adequate liquids could actually kill you. It could be serious. Never got to that point. You see, when, when you are hungry, when you're thirsty, you don't think clearly, but you know want to know it's even worse than being hangry and having an empty stomach. It's having an empty heart. That's, that's much worse. If you have an empty heart, it carries with you. It affects you spiritually. It affects how you see yourself. It affects how you see the whole world. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, this is our main point. It's this, you won't think clearly if your heart's on empty. You won't think clearly if your heart is on empty. In fact, Psalm 63, one says this. I'll just read it to you. It says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a dry land that is desolate and without water. We will die spiritually. 
We will shrivel up spiritually. We'll be sidelined if our heart is always and perpetually on empty. And I want to tell you this morning, every single one of us has the propensity to be on empty. And many of us this morning, if we were to admit it, we are on empty right now. Have you ever felt this way? Are you feeling this way right now? Depletion and emptiness to your soul. Like you're in a rat race of life. That life just seems like it's repeating and you begin to question the meaning of life. Oh yeah, if you've been in the church world, you know the right answers to the meaning, but how come you can't feel it? One morning my daughter was crying, Etta. And usually when she cries, she can get over it pretty quickly, but there are times she gets so wound up, she begins to cry, cry louder, she begins to shake. And so there was one time Etta got really wound up. I went in the room and I gave her a big hug and I said, Etta, calm down, calm down. Uh, and she goes, I can't calm down. Why? I just can't calm down. And I, and I, just, I just give her another hug and I begin to pray for her. I'm like, well, what's, what's the matter? Can you tell me what's the matter? I can't calm down and I don't know what's the matter. She's only seven years old, guys. Please pray for us. <laughs> but isn't that us? We get so worked up, our hearts get so depleted and empty, and sometimes we don't even know what it is. God wants our attention this morning. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry, you're experiencing this emptiness, God wants to meet with you. He wants to fill you this morning. He wants to give you strength to endure. Now, some of you are like, I'm just fine. Well, maybe you're not. Sometimes you're so depleted, you forget what hunger's all about. That's the worst part of dehydration. You don't even know you're thirsty any longer. And for many of us, we may be so hungry, so thirsty, so depleted, we don't know it any longer. But, but maybe you're in here today and you are in a time of prosperity. You're in a time of, of life is good. And I want you to know there will be a time you feel empty. There will be a time that your heart is challenged because life is pressing in. You're in the vice grips of life. So God wants your attention today. Are you feeling empty? Do you feel like you're in the desert? Or are you feeling fine? Listen, here's the deal. You will have a moment where you will feel empty and the question is, what are you gonna do with it? And when you're feeling empty and when you're not being filled with the Lord, you will not think clearly. You will not think clearly if your heart is on empty. So there's three truths of a empty heart I wanna talk about this morning. The first one is this. An empty heart finds satisfaction in all the wrong places. An empty heart to itself will find all its satisfaction in all the wrong places. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. You can turn there in your Bibles or your app, um, and the words will be on the screen if you're new here today. Um, but if, you're, if you call this place your home, you know what I'm gonna say. Get in your word, start marking it up, make it your own. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. I'm gonna give you a few moments to get in your Bible. All right? Awesome. 1 John 2, 15, and... Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So John is speaking to us and as we apply it to our hearts and our condition, we have two options this morning. We can look to be filled up with the things of the world, or we can seek God. I know it sounds like a simplistic A or B choice, but it's not simplistic. 
Nobody would have an empty heart if it was easy. So let's take a look at these two paths here. The first word, or first phrase we see here in 1 John in 2, verse 15, is do not love the world. If you've been in the church world for a long time, this is a common phrase. You don't want to love the world. You don't want to be worldly. You know, that's of the world. And sometimes when you use phrases or you say phrases, they can lose their meaning. You just say it, right? You just say a phrase. I'm like, oh, okay. And we act as a Band-Aid and nothing changes. What's God's word actually saying? And so, do not love the world. This is what it doesn't mean. John is not speaking of not caring for the physical world. Uh, when you read this, okay, don't love the world, all right, sweet. I'm not gonna throw things away in the trash bin. I'm just gonna throw it out the window when I'm done, when I'm driving down the road. Why? Don't need to love the world, right? That's not what this is saying. That's not, what this, that, that's not this at all. In fact, in the early church, there was a false teaching that was going around the early churches. It was called Gnosticism. And they taught uh, a twisting of the scriptures. And they taught that the material world was evil. The material world was evil. And so they, and, and whenever someone teaches a false teaching, it always leads down a road of just absolute sin and debauchery. All right? And so they said, uh, that's physical world. You're not to love the world. The physical world is evil. So therefore, your bodies don't matter. So if your bodies don't matter, guess what? Do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. And so what people would do that bought into this Gnostic heresy is they would indulge in drunkenness. They would indulge in, um, in extramarital sex. Uh, they would uh, live rampantly and through all their lives. They lived and let lived. It was a false teaching. It was a heresy. That's not what this is saying, to hate the material world. And by the way, anytime a church or a movement tries to go beyond Scripture or they twist Scripture, they take a, a section of Scripture and make it uh, the main thing where the rest of Scripture obviously shows that it's out of context. Whenever somebody tries to twist Christianity or build a better view, a, a secret hidden knowledge of Christianity where they teach something that goes against God's word, I want you to know this right now, if it goes against God's word, it's a cult. It's not, it, it's not, it's not biblical Christianity. And it's why we have variations of Christianity today, uh, such as Jehovah Witnesses, uh, Jehovah Witness or uh, the Mormons, but also there are many churches today that have said God's word is not God's word, and they read poetry, or they read texts from other religions. They, they cease to be churches. If we want to continue to be a church, we want to continue to be a biblical Christian, we're going to be Bible Christians, all right? And the Bible Christians, that uh, means that we're going to be informed with what God's word says. And God's word will inform us if we're actually hearing from God. You'll know when the Holy Spirit is moving because it won't contradict what the Spirit wrote through the scriptures. We need to be Bible Christians. And what's clear here is whenever we come to a term, we need to ask, what is God's word saying? So, do not love the world. It does not mean to hate the world. Why? Because God created the world. He said it was good, but the world was corrupted through sin, okay? So, we're not to despise God's creation. We're not to despise the people that are on this world, all right? So when he says don't love the world, it doesn't mean that you're to dislike people or people that are far from God. To the contrary, we're to love the people uh, in this world, whether they are nice to you or not. So what does this really mean then? What does world mean? Do not love the world or the things of the world. Well, the word world here comes from the term, the Greek word cosmos, I usually only bring up Greek terms when you kind of really see the English meaning. It's kind of already baked in there. Cosmos. It's where we, we get uh, the cosmos, right? It's where, it, it, where we look at the universe. It, it, is a, 
it is a word that can be translated the world order. We are not to love by default how the world thinks without God. We aren't to love the world's ways or be enamored by the things of the world to replace God. That's what this is saying. This order that's opposed to the things of God. It doesn't take long for you to look at the cultural shift or the cultural drift and know that's not of God. And it's, it's tempting for you to want to be accepted. And so you just flow, go with the flow in culture. And that what John is saying is don't do that. You need to go upstream. You need to not go with the flow. You need to go with God. This world order is temporarily guided right now by Satan himself. Ephesians 2, 2, Paul writes to the church in Ephesians. And he tells us that this world order is according to the power of the prince of the air, which is another term for Satan himself. He is temporarily running havoc in this world, but know that he's a defeated foe. When Jesus Christ comes back, uh, Satan will spend eternity in hell. Uh, but until then, he's running havoc as a defeated foe to keep people from believing in Jesus Christ and to keep you, if you're a follower of Christ, from being impactful for his kingdom. He wants to enlist you, Satan does, for his kingdom. And how he does that for a follower of Christ is he tries to get you enamored by the things of this world, the lusts of this world, so that you're ineffective for the things of God. So we're not to love this world order. Let's take a look at the word love as well, too. I think love is important because it's been so redefined uh, in our culture. I heard this just yesterday, so I want to borrow this. Um, they said, you feel what you like, but you choose what you love. I, lo I love that, <laughs> right? You choose what you like, or you feel what you like. A like is like, oh, it's that feeling. Like, you can have feelings whether they're illegitimate or not, all right? But you have to choose if you're going to love that. And this love that we see from the original here, it means to set your highest affections toward that something. It's to take pleasure in that something. It's to prefer that something. And so love, yes, it's an action, right? But it's also a choice. And whether it's a friendship, it's a family member, it's a marriage, there's ups and there's downs and you're to love through all of them. And with our Lord God Almighty, sometimes we don't understand what he's doing. Sometimes we want God to act in a certain way. And whether God acts a certain way or not, we're to love him no matter what. Love is a choice. And so we're told here not to love the world. We're to love the Lord God Almighty. And, and God is, this is very important to God. We see here in verse 15, if anyone loves, that is choose the world's way, the love of the Father is not in them. I mean, God is drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying, you love me or you don't love me? You love me or you don't love me? I mean, man, that is pretty black and white. God, are you serious? But there are moments where we are not demonstrating love to the Father by what we do. And so, many of us, we want God, right? If we, if we were to do a little poll in here, we'd all say, oh, yeah, 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 I want God, I want God. But for many of us, and I've been guilty of this in my life too, sometimes I just want God on my side. I want him right here. All right, God, walk with me. I'm gonna go do this thing now. God, walk with me. I'm gonna say this to this person right now. God, walk with me. I'm gonna, I, 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 want, I, I want you to just come alongside me and observe what I do in my marriage, how I spend my money, uh, how, how I perform at my job, how I treat people, the words that come out of my mouth. I mean, I just want, I just want the blessing of you as I do what I'm gonna do anyway. That's what many of us, including myself by default, what we want. But God doesn't want to just be Besides you, no, 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 he is the Lord, which means master. He is the Lord God Almighty who goes before us and he says, follow me. 
God did not come to this world to be an add-on, to be a genie to the answers of your earthly prayers of prosperity. He did not come so that you can boss him around. He came to be your leader. He came to be your Lord. And there's a clear line. Do you love the world or do you love God? And if you're not wholehearted, he's inviting us, he's inviting you right now to be captivated by him, uh, to, to fall in love with him. We can be so easily captivated by the world's ways, and God knows that. That's why he's making this very clear. Do not love the world, for verse 16, for everything in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's look at that, the lust of the flesh. We have lust of the flesh, we have, we have lust of the eyes, we have pride in one's possessions. We are being attracted, the world is trying to attract us through different lusters. And we see the lust of the flesh. That refers to the cravings for our natural hearts, for the things that God has said we need to avoid, uh, as well as the perversions of natural things and the excesses. That's what the lust of the flesh is. Uh, it is by natural default in this world, we are going to crave things we ought not to crave. And the question is, even if you like craving those things, are you gonna love it? Are you gonna be all about it? Are you gonna choose it? Paul gives clear examples of what the lust of the flesh is all about in Galatians chapter five, verse 19. I'll read it to you. It says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, which is any sexual activity outside of marriage. Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, that's lifting anything above God, anything, anything, whether good or bad, that you lift, lift above God in your affections and in your view, that is a modern-day idol. Sorcery is another work of the flesh. I, I have usually just passed through sorcery because I'm like, I don't really know a sorcerer. I want you to know right now, sorcery is huge right now in our culture. People are spiritually hungry. They're looking for answers. They're looking for people to give them answers. And so they are diving deep into the spiritual world. But what they don't realize is they're deeping into the satanic spiritual world, whether it be, whether it be tarot cards, whether it be seeking out mediums or psychics. All those things are, are sorcery and the works of the flesh. Paul goes on to the Galatian church. He said that the works of the flesh are hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Basically, it's a whole list that should make us feel like ah, crud, <laughs> right? But we won't think clearly if our hearts aren't empty and our hearts aren't empty if we're trying to fill it with anything and everything the world has to offer. An empty heart looks in all the wrong places, and these are the places an empty heart ends up. Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the possessions is not from the Father, but it's of the world. So we see now the lust of the eyes. So where our heart goes, if our heart is choosing to love things, choosing to prefer things, our eyes will go where our heart is already. We will look for the things that we feel will satisfy our empty hearts. And with our eyes, we'll begin to compare our life to our neighbor's lives or to our, or to our, uh, our friends' lives or other family members' lives. And we'll, we'll be like, why do they have what I don't have? I feel like they have a specific relationship or possession or, or prominence in life, and I don't have that. Or, or maybe you experienced something in your life that was completely just tragic, and you're like, why has why everybody else moved on? Uh, and, but, but yeah, I'm stuck in this area. And our eyes begin to look, and they begin to compare 
Our eyes look at what we could have had. Our eyes look at the greener grass. By the way, there's no such thing as greener grass. Did you know that? Whenever we're looking for greener grass, we're looking at grass that doesn't have, uh, has a less amount of manure. But every, every, every lawn, every pasture, you're, there's going to be manure. The lust of your eyes are, are, are bored with God because it wants to look for something that can fill the void that only God can feel. The lust, of the, the lust of the eyes make one grumpy because they're never satisfied. And so what we do as a result is that uh, we buy things, we move, we change our house, we, we change our jobs. Uh, if we can only get that raise, if we can only get that something, it will make me happy. And if we get that something, it becomes our pride for that moment. Look, I have this thing. It makes me so happy until it doesn't. But here's, here is the spoiler alert. Whatever relationship you want to change, whatever possession that you want to attain, wherever you want to move, wherever you want to go, I want you to know, you want to know what goes with you in every single situation, your heart that's inside of you. It's not the things that you have in your life that's the problem, it's the heart that's inside our very chest. It's the heart that we need to give God right now and say, God, I need you to fill this, because if I try to fill it with anything else, I'm going to end up dissatisfied and even more miserable. The lust of the eyes lead to the pride of possessions, verse 17 and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Our hearts long for a quick fix. They long for a quick fix and a quick fill. This is where we get ourselves into trouble. And we see here that this is all empty because the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of our possessions, they're all, they're all temporary. They're all passing away. But what God wants to give, doing the will of God, being obedient in everything that he's asking us to be, being obedient in everything he's asking us to do as a person and as a church, that remains forever. But we won't do that if we're trying to fill our hearts with the things of this world. We won't think clearly if our heart's not empty. Our hearts by themselves will try to find satisfaction in all the wrong places. So this leads us to the second truth of an empty heart, is an empty heart needs supernatural intervention. You see, what secular society will tell you is if you're feeling empty, you need to figure out what's going inside yourself. You need to, you need to have some me time. You, you need to read some books and, and, and do a seven-step book program where, where you can make sure that you're the best version of yourself and you can find yourself and you can be yourself and all of these things. And listen, I'm not gonna say that self-care has zero worth. It does have worth, but it's not your salvation. It's not the ultimate answer. It's why I, I literally saw an advertisement for someone saying, how to read 100 books in a year. That's insane. You don't need to read 100 books in a year, okay? But people are on this kick, this extreme kick, like, okay, if I get all this information, if I get all this uh, how-to, then my life, I'm gonna be not only good, I'm gonna be a guru. I can teach everybody. That's why today we have these things called these life coaches. Oh boy, I hope there's none in here. Uh, but uh, but uh, okay, and if you are, then great, you're, you're awesome. Okay, but what I'm saying is this. We have all these life coaches who become social media influencers and they're like 18 years old. You don't know what you're talking about. Can I say that? You need to be a learner. It's like, let me tell you how to do this, that, and whatever, and, and you know, how to parent and all that. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Oh, you have 15,000 views, okay? The thing is, is that this is what we've come into. We feel like that somehow we can deliver ourselves and then we can become a guru to other people. And it's the blind leading the blind. Where do they fall into? They 
fall into a pit. That's why we need a supernatural intervention if we are to fill our hearts. Listen, we can all admit it. We are all, we all have the propensity to be empty. Some of us are feeling empty. And if you're not feeling empty, you will have a period of life where you will be empty. So we, this isn't about shaming or whatever. And by the way, life coach is really sorry about that. Okay, but I, I guess I, I mean what I said though. But anyway, so the thing is we need a supernatural intervention. A supernatural intervention. If you're going to coach somebody, if you're going to give someone advice, even if you're going to preach from behind this pulpit, we aren't the answer. The Lord God Almighty is the answer. We need his supernatural intervention. We need his word to inform us. We need his Holy Spirit to empower us. And we need to trust him as he goes before us. Let's take a look at a supernatural intervention. John chapter 4, verse 7. John chapter 4, verse 7. Let's turn there. I'm going to have you turn there because we're going to be there for the remainder of our time. And as you're turning there, let me give you some background. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They walked everywhere. Walking with his disciples, they were heading to Galilee. And to get to Galilee, the shortest route was to go through an area called Samaria. It's where the Samaritans live. And what was customary for the Jewish people at the time, they did not like the Samaritans. They looked at them as like a half-breed Jewish people. They, they married all these people outside of Judaism. They, had, they, they twisted this, their, the scriptures, and they had their own place to worship. And they were just like, I want nothing to do with those people. So what often the Jewish people would do to get to Galilee is they would take the long road. You know like when you, um, when you go on maps, and, um, and, you, and you go ahead and you're like, you know what, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in my, my hometown here. Okay, here it is. So there's three ways, all right? There's, there's, three, there's three routes that Google will always give you or Apple Maps will always give you. And one is like the most direct route. It's like that's the route you should take. Then it gives you another route just in case if maybe there's other traffic. But they always give a third route that is just preposterous. It's like, all right, six hours, five hours, 40 minutes, 10 hours. Who in the world would take that, right? I mean, maybe if there's something, there's nothing scenic. I guess if you don't want to go through Chicago or Rockford, guess like, I ain't going through those towns. Like, okay, have a nice 10-hour trip. Well, guess what? The Jewish people, when they'd rev up Google, they'd always pick the longest route around Samaria, Samaria because they couldn't stand them. So what do you think Jesus is going to do? Jesus is like, we're going to Galilee. They're like, okay, it's going to be a long trip. We're going through Samaria. What? And they began to walk through Samaria. Now, Jesus came to save the sins of the world. He, was not, he did not come to live by the traditions of man. He did not come to please the religious authorities. Uh, he came to do the will of the Father. And he's like, we're going through a land that all of you avoided. Why? Because these people need Jesus. These people need salvation. So Jesus walked right in, and the disciples were absolutely baffled. And so they walked a considerable distance. We're told in Scripture they became wearied. And they went, finally ended up into a, into a city called Sakar. John 4, verse 7. Let's pick it up here. Jacob's well was there. It's probably most likely why they stopped there. They knew there was a well. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw the water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, the Samaritan woman asked? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So there's something absolutely amazing in this portion of scripture. 
Not only did Jesus break the custom of walking right through the land, he ends up at a well and begins to talk to a woman. Now, in this time, for many people, they viewed women as somebody that was not of equal worth. Now, we know in Scripture that men and women are different. They're created different. I know that's controversial today. Whatever. All right, so men and women, they were created by God. Uh, there was, he created men. He created women. And they complement each other, all right? They complement each other in many ways, but we know we populate the earth by one way of complementing each other, okay? And so uh, God created male and female, but in this era, they were not seen as equal. God created men and women as equal. I want you to know that. Equal in worth. He's equal in ability to, to worship and have salvation. Many people in this era did not believe that. And so when you would see a woman, men would often avoid that woman because like, eh, this, is, this is taboo. So Jesus is breaking two taboos, but he's breaking a third one. And you could easily miss this if you just blow through the text and just read this as, you would, uh, as a familiar story. Jesus is showing up to the Samaritan woman and he's asking her for a drink. Now, what we see later on in scripture is that she is coming basically at noon to draw water. At noon. Usually women would go get water for their baking goods and water for their households in the morning or in the evening because it was hot at noon. This woman came to the well at noon because of her reputation. She was known as somebody who would sleep around. And because of that, she did not want to interact with other people. She felt shame. Other people saw her as damaged goods. They saw her as somebody that, that was less than human. And so not only was she a Samaritan, she was a Samaritan woman who had the reputation of being a prostitute. And yet, Jesus is talking to her and saying, I need water. I need water. The lady was dumbfounded. Verse 10 Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank it from himself as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus is talking about water. And Jesus often, when you would see his parables or when he'd bring up spiritual truths, he uses a, something in the physical world as an illustration. So Jesus makes a beeline for the well because he sees somebody that needs God, right? Yeah, he might need water physically. He's weary, scripture says. But he went to the well and he's like, I am gonna talk about salvation. And so Jesus begins to make, he, he does a little flip, all right? He's like, okay, you're drawing water. I could give you living water. And this lady literally takes him at his word like, oh, Really? You, you, the, 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 you have water that's better than this water? I mean, I imagine this, this well, um, because she's taking him literally, this well was probably a little stagnant. There was not that living water that she would have understood that as a stream of water, fresh water. She's like, oh, show me where this water's at. She took him at his word. She's like, I want this water. I want, I want this better water. Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks in this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks in the water I give him will never thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a, water of, a well of water springing up in him for an eternal life. Verse 15, sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Jesus responded, go call your husband and come back here. 
So this, this lady still doesn't get that Jesus is making a, a spiritual picture here. She's like, oh man, uh, not only is this like fresh water, this is water that literally I'll never thirst again. Like this is gonna make my life really easy. Okay, where can I get it? And Jesus responds, go call your husband. <laughs> Why would he do that? Why would Jesus say, hey, um, go call your husband? And I can imagine the woman at the well, what immediately she was thinking, oh, no. The shame, all of everything that was in her heart, the emptiness that was in her heart was absolutely exposed. So she responds, I imagine in absolute horror and shame, verse 17, I don't have a husband. Jesus responds, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She's like, oh, knew it. Everybody else knows who I am. Everybody else knows all the mistakes I've been. Everybody knows the insecurity, and because likewise the emptiness that I feel and the sin that I try to fill my heart with. And here we go again. I'm going to be shamed. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why say, hey, go, go get your husband? Because Jesus knew, he knew specifically that she was only trying to fill her heart, quench her thirst with something in the physical world. You see, Jesus did not come just to make our physical lives easier. We forget that sometimes. Sometimes people preach that and it's wrong. Uh, yes, uh, people's relationship with Jesus should be seen in this physical world. We should love this world, right? We should love the people in this world. So therefore, people should be changed when they meet you and experience you and, and see the Holy Spirit through you. But Jesus came specifically to save us spiritually. We are dead spiritually without a remedy, without a savior because of our sin. And so Jesus went right for her heart and it hurt Oh, man, he knew exactly what was going on. She finally realized, though, wait a minute. How does he know these things? And as the story goes on, I just imagine her eyes getting really big and realizing she had that aha moment. Like, Jesus isn't talking. This man isn't talking about physical water. He's actually talking about something that could do something to my heart that's been empty. And she became ecstatic. She realized, I have met the savior of the world. I have met somebody who could save my heart. I've been trying to save my heart. I've been trying to fill my heart. I've been trying to fill it with so many different things in life and I end up even more bankrupt each time. And yet now, I have met somebody who told everything about my life, who offered me the water of life, who offered me salvation, actually fill this heart. Whoa! And what we see here is something absolutely, I think, one of the most amazing verses in this whole story is verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar. She left the very thing that she felt she needed to fill her physical life. She left her water jar and she went into the town and told the people, the very people she felt shame with, the very people she avoided so she went to the well at noon, the very people she thought they have written me off, they've left me for dead, the very people that saw the worst in her, she went and said, guys, I have found my remedy and it's not just my remedy, it's your remedy. She told everybody in verse 39, we see many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I 
did. When our hearts are empty, we will be prone to look in all the wrong places and rely on ourselves. But the woman at the well, who was filled with illicit relationships, she was filled with depression, insecurity, I'm sure frustrated and jealous, she saw her remedy. She saw her supernatural intervention through, Savior, through the Savior Jesus Christ. She, she saw how she can actually live life through the living water, which we're told later on is, is that we receive in salvation and then we receive through the Holy Spirit. Her intervention, her supernatural intervention is our supernatural intervention. We need to have a woman at the well moment when we realize the things that we think that can we put into our heart, if we coulda, woulda, shoulda, or only if we can have this, or only if I do this and my life will be better, we put that scenarios and all those scenarios away and saying, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. I need Jesus. Wherever I find myself, Jesus. Wherever I find myself feeling, Jesus. Whatever I start thinking, I need Jesus. Whatever I think I need to accomplish, I want to make sure, Jesus, you're leading the way. I want to make sure that your Holy Spirit is leading my heart. I want to make sure I'm hearing your voice. I want to make sure I'm remembering what I read. I want to make sure that you are my satisfaction. We all need a supernatural intervention. Without it, we can live full for a day, but we'll get hungry, and then we'll be empty. We need a supernatural intervention. Third thing about an empty heart is that an empty heart is only filled upon full surrender to God. Full surrender to God. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice accepted to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Many of us make this and we're tempted to make this our home. If you don't know Christ, this is your spiritual home, this broken, fallen world. If you're a follower of Christ, you realize that we were not made for this to be our home. We have an eternal home in the presence of God in heaven. And right now we bring heaven to earth uh, through people seeing uh, the actions of God through his spirit in your life. But by default in our natural selves, we'll begin to live for ourselves and we'll begin to live as if this world is our only home. But we already saw earlier this world is fading. And I believe that if you're, someone said, hey, you know, Andy, when do you think Jesus is coming back? Well, guess what? We're doing a series in a couple of weeks. Uh, next, uh, at the end of next month, we're going to start a series in Revelation, all right? I will tell you what I think then, all right? Do-do-do-do, right? <laughs> anyway, but I, I don't think, I, I do believe, I'll give you a spoiler alert here. I do believe the dates I'm going to give you, I really, truly believe Jesus will come back before these. But I give you these dates, these very futuristic dates of what's going to happen to this world, because these are futuristic dates of what scientists say is going to happen to our world. You see, it is not just a Christian thought. It's not just Christian theology. It's not just from the Bible that we learn that this earth is passing. Even secular scientists say this world is passing. So secular scientists believe within 17,000 years, a volcano eruption will be big enough to destroy most of living life on the planet. All right, that's, that's fun, all right? 
Secular scientists believe that within 50,000 years, the earth will go through such a dramatic ice age that all the glaciers that used to be over Wisconsin and all over the United States and all over the world will once again emerge, all right? So if you're still alive, all right, you're going to have to get a coat, all right? Because we are going to live through another ice age. So, and there's a bunch of other stuff between 50,000 years and this last date I'm gonna give you of just horrific things that are gonna happen in the earth. But this is the end. I'm gonna give you, when they say, this is the end of the earth as we know it. 7.9 billion years from now, so the secular scientists say, the sun will go through a red dwarf phase and completely engulf the earth and the earth will cease to exist, all right? So the secular scientists are agreeing with the Bible in part that this world's fading away. They just think it's gonna be 7.9 billion years from now. I think it's gonna be a lot sooner than that. And it's when, not when the, the sun engulfs the earth or a volcano blows up the whole world and the ice takes over the whole planet. It is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. That trumpet rings. He comes back and he gathers his people to be with him. And everybody will stand before him, whether you know him or not. And the world will cease to be in that moment. But do make no mistake, this world, yes, it's corrupted. Yes, this world is fading, it's failing, but he's come to restore to give us a new heaven and new earth. Make no mistake, when you live in eternity with Jesus Christ, you're gonna live in the creation without sin in a universe and in heaven and earth that is without sin, pain, and suffering. Yes, he's coming back. And we live for that kingdom and not the kingdom that's fading. But we're prone to wander. King Solomon of Israel. He was the son of David. He had it all. He could hear from God. He began to get all the possessions that he had and then he began to stray from God. In fact, he's like, you know what, heart? I'm gonna try out everything, I'm the king. And so he began to accumulate horses, which is the equivalent of our cars, gold, buildings, Land, wives. He had 800 wives and 200 concubines at least, all right? 1,000 women he was intimate with. He had it all. And then he had a realization at the end of his life. We see this autobiography in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And he begins with this. I let my heart have everything, but it was meaningless, meaningless. All this life is meaningless. And you go through the next dozen or so chapters of, the, of this book, and you realize his indulgence of this fading world, him putting all these things in his heart that was empty. Yeah, he had it all, but it was empty. It put him into a depression. He realized all this is meaningless. What is, there to, what is there to life? It's depressing. The first 11 chapters in Ecclesiastes are absolutely depressing. But it is a warning. It's a cautionary story. Reality of what happens when we say yes to everything to try to fill our hearts. But God intervened and he fully surrendered. And we see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. And this is what he says at the end of the book. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God. Not like, ooh, fear God. It's 
understand the power of God. When we hear fear God, some people are like, oh, that's weird. I thought God was supposed to be our heavenly father. We're supposed to have a close relationship. Yes, you are. He's our friend. Yes, he is. But let me tell you this. He's also the Lord God Almighty, whose ways cannot be frauded. It's just like this. Mom says, don't put your hand on the burning stove. Y'all tried it once. I know I did. I never did it again because I feared what would happen if I put my hand on that burning stove. It was respecting the stove. I don't have a phobia of stoves. Glad I have one, but I respect its power. That's what fearing God is. It's respecting his sovereignty. It's respecting who he is. It's respecting knowing that he's in charge. It's respecting that he has purposes and plans for your life. It's respecting that he has commands that he wants us to be obedient to. So he said, conclusion of the matter is this, fear God, keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. What Solomon is saying to us, he experienced everything in trying to fill his heart. And listen, some of our hearts are empty today, not because of sin, because something happened to you. And listen, I want you to know this right now. If something happened to you and it has depleted you, you lost a family member, you lost a friend, something happened with your possessions or you lost your job, whatever it is, I'm not saying for you to put a smile on your face and say, oh, that was awesome. No, that's not awesome. It's gut-wrenching. And we will all go through those moments. However, you have the responsibility how are you going to respond in those moments where you're wrecked? How are you going to respond in those moments that you've been empty? Not because of your sin, because sin will empty you, but what will happen when you've been emptied because of life, because of a world that's been marred by sin? Wasn't your fault. Your, your responsibility still is what are you going to do about it? Because it's in those moments where you can say, you know what, God, forget it. I've served you my whole life. I've done all these things. And this is what you give me? Well, guess what? I'm gonna go to try to find everything else and fill my heart. And Solomon's saying, it's meaningless, don't do that. The conclusion of life is this. Whatever has made your heart feel empty, and you can just be like my daughter, you don't know why you're feeling empty. God has the supernatural intervention, the answer. So in closing, let's get specific. If you're feeling empty this morning or when you feel empty, that's what I should say. This is, this is too simplified, I know, but I wanna give you some practical things this morning. What to do when your heart feels empty. Number one is address it. Don't ignore it, address it. This is what David, this is Solomon's uh, dad, David, when he sinned and committed adultery, and when he committed adultery, he took the, the lady he had adultery with, he took this lady's husband and put him on the front line of war so he'd be killed, and he was. So not only did he commit adultery, he committed murder. And he went on with life like, <laughs> eh, whatever. And he was confronted by a prophetic word, and he was cut to the heart. And we see this in Psalm 51. He said this, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. 
Sometimes we just need to pray Psalm 51. Especially if we know we've rebelled against God's commands. Address the mess. And even if it's not something that you, that something happened to you, pray this as a, uh, as a precaution. As in God, give me a clean heart to this. I'm struggling. Address the mess. Secondly is pray. When you're empty, pray, because he he's the only one that can fill you. Pray, wait on the Holy Spirit. Allow, say, God, Holy Spirit, fill me. I don't need to know all the answers. I just need to know your presence. I need to know your goodness. Yes, help me see what, what you see, but even if I don't, let me know that you're good. We're gonna do that in just a moment. We're gonna pray. We're gonna address the mess, we're gonna pray. people that need that are in tough situations two people that I know of that I've, I've been allowed to share one is my mom she was diagnosed with aggressive cancer this week in her kidney and she has faith that allows her to have joy you never know it on the phone so I'm praying all right God that kind of depleted me this week but you're good you're mighty to heal and I'm going to pray into that. Whatever you do, I'm going to pray that that's what happens. We have a dear brother in our church, Mel. Mel, if you've been in our church for more than a couple weeks, he's usually the guy that stands at that door and greets you with a gigantic smile. He's been in the hospital for a week and a half. He has issues going on with his pancreas. We don't know what's going on. And I call him on the phone. He's weak. We need to pray that the strength of the Lord goes over him as he's feeling empty. I just bring up two things right there. I think collectively there's probably a hundred areas. Like, God, fill us. We need to go to him in prayer. The prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Finally, after prayer is we need to wait. We need to wait on the spirit of God to do what he's going to do. Lamentations 3.25 says this, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. So for empty this morning, know this, that if you're living in your emptiness, you won't be able to see clearly. You need God's intervention in your life. And you need to surround yourself with other people to pray with you, to walk with you, so that we can see Jesus going before us. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.